Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we'll have industry experts with their insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that impacts your agency and organization. Today, we will have Gavin Reed, the Vice President of Threat Intelligence at Lanco. Good day, Gavin. How are you doing? Oh, doing good. How are you today, Kevin? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today on our podcast. I think we have some very interesting things to discuss especially from a threat intelligence perspective and all the work you do at Landcope in helping federal agencies with their threat intelligence. Good deal. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your role at Landcope and what you do today at Landcope? Sure. Um, at Landcope, I lead their research labs department. And what we do in, in the research labs, amongst other things, is we look into threat. We look into how it's detected and then how can we use some of those detections to make the product better? Um, previous to that, I led Cisco's threat research and big data teams and CERT. And then previous to that, I did something similar to the government. Uh, in all of those roles, we both created and used threat intelligence to help manage the security of the site. And um, I would say it's important for me to note at the beginning of this talk that threat intelligence is part of a defense in-depth strategy. It's not a replacement for existing tools. It's a way to enhance them. So one of the things we're, we've been seeing a lot of breaches occurring in not only the federal government, but just in industry alone. And it brings up a very interesting question about threat intelligence. Uh, so one of the first questions I have for you is, how can federal agencies use threat intelligence in particular to improve their incident response capabilities? So, um, yeah, great question. So good in intelligence is a force multiplier across all of your incident response capabilities. And so I sort of uh, liken it a little bit, you know, having good detection tools like uh, IDS, uh, NetFlow, uh, you know, host-based logging, um, host-based intrusion detection. Having those tools on your network is a little bit akin to the screwdriver that's sitting in my garage with cob cobwebs on it. They can be used, but uh, right now it's not really being used for anything. And what threat intelligence does is it gives you something that you can aim those tools at. So one of the big problems or myths of the security industry is that we can get data and somehow magically find the bad guy. This works pretty well for easy to detect automated attacks. and It fails miserably at the hard human-led compromises that uh, you know have played over the media in the last couple of years. The fact is that often to find the problem, you have to do just like law enforcement has done forever. You need to start with a clue, and threat intelligence can be that clue. You brought up some very interesting um, issues regarding big data as it relates to threat intelligence. More and more devices generate more and more alarms and more data. Uh, federal agencies are collecting a ton of data. What advice would you give to federal systems in making sense of their data so they can really get to or pivot into the data that really matters the most? Yeah, so, well, there's a, a number of things that come to mind. The first one is um, the data by itself isn't all that useful. And so as you bring in data, you want to make sure that you contextualize it in a way that's meaningful for how you're going to use the data. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of terms there. So to make it more plain, uh, as you bring in data, you're going to find that you need to add additional fields to that data um, to augment what may come. 
um, you know, things like, uh, you know, DNS resolution, things like uh, IP reputation. Um, and, and so one of the things that I'd recommend is that um, sort of, you know, you want to automate as much as you can, right? Um, but in that automation, make sure that you also, you know, bring in as much context, you know, so add to the data that you bring in um, and, and at the same time standardize it so that you know when you're looking at the data that you're going to have certain fields that uh, you can depend on being there. And that's really going to help you as you start sort of developing analytical tools to look at it. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, pivoting on large data, this is, you know, where automation and some of the big data technologies can can really help. Um, at Landcope, our next generation product is going to focus on things like graph databases. Um, that technology allows for pivoting or comparison of millions of nodes instantly. And that's the sort of thing that, you, you know, from a technology perspective, um, as you grow your data store, you're going to need the capability to do. It's one thing to have, you know, terabytes or petabytes of data. Um, it's another thing of every time you want to go and look for something, it takes, you know, uh, hours and minutes of time uh, to get your answer back. You're going to want to be able to make sure that you can do that pretty quickly. So we have all this data. So one of the things I'm always trying to figure out ways to partner and collaborate, right? So one of the questions I wanted to know from you, Gavin, is what are some improvements we need to make to remove the barriers for information sharing between government and industry? Yeah, well, here's where sometimes, you know, regulation can actually hurt where, uh, you know, depending on, on the type of regulation, if uh, certain things need to happen every time the data is shared, then obviously that may, you know, kind of put the, 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 bl the blinders on, so to speak, and make organizations less open to sharing information and more um, likely to just, you know, keep that in-house and not actually look into it too much. And I'm speaking in, per you know, in particular to, uh, you know, regulation around, well, what happens if you suspect a breach? Um, and so, you know, that, that can sometimes run contrary to, you know, being able real open and, and having the ability to share both how the breach happened and the extent of the breach very, very broadly. So, um, you know, obviously there, there's a, you know, there's a, a point that's probably interesting to look in there. And then at the same time, you know, what, uh, you know, what I really would like to recommend to the federal government is to think of supporting not replacing existing organizations that already do that. So we have organizations, um, you know, that are usually uh, sort of from the uh, private side, but with often with a, with a lot of public interaction um, that exists and have been doing this for the past decade. Um, so help build existing communities instead of starting from scratch with a whole new setup. Um, especially, you know, if you think of organizations like FIRST, the form of incident response and security teams, this is a nonpartisan, it's not, it's not country specific, it's uh, not organization specific, it's not vendor specific group that shares information. And um, so building into groups like this gets, um, you know, gets sort of a, a past a lot of suspicion about the motivation of why one particular group or company or country is doing this and allows us to concentrate on what we really need to concentrate on, which is what are the techniques and the tactics that the hackers are using and how can we best defend against them? So you mentioned tactics and methods that are used by attackers. And typically what we've been seeing is we've been more focusing on indicators of compromise, which to me is after the fact, after the adversary has compromised or, you know, has kind of, 
you know, move through the kill chain to a certain extent. And I, I typically look at that as more of a reactive approach. How do we shift the focus from being reactive to be more proactive um, and focus on some of the things that really help us from the threat intelligence standpoint to mitigate a lot of these threats? Yeah, so you are correct. Indicators of compromise are an after-the-fact approach. And if you, you know, compare those with sort of ta tactics and methods, you, you know, we typically use the techniques that uh, hackers use more uh, proactively. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, in, you know, some of the more advanced uh, uh, attacks we've seen in the past couple of years, often compromising uh, Windows Active Directory domain is the end goal. And so people realize that and they've started to instrument around that. They've started to set up logging and monitoring around uh, people attempting to manipulate or do things that would lead up to the compromise of a domain. And so you know, that's a way that you can use threat intelligence uh, to, to be proactive. That being said, even though indicators of compromise are an after-effect approach, it's not necessarily bad. Um, hackers will reuse their infrastructure. Um, groups will look into that infrastructure reuse as a detection method. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, there are limits with what you can do with predictive analysis. I'm not saying it's not worthwhile, but it, at best, it's detecting noisy, easy-to-pattern easy attacks, and it works less well on smart human-led attacks. And I would counter that uh, us, the security community, um, searching for magic algorithms that will find the bad guy is one of the wild goose chases that has sort of led us up to this point where we're at now. Um, we need to concentrate on strong security controls for stuff we care about, have good monitoring of accesses to that with people, not machines, paying attention to what happens. And people, not machines, are the fix for this problem. Where technology helps is where it extends the reach and speed and accuracy of your team, uh, not replaces them. Gavin, you participated in the national conversation in Atlanta, and uh, you were a panelist for that. Um, one of the things that came out of that national conversation was, wh why is detecting lateral movement so difficult? So we've typically focused attentions on external to internal or internal to external collection and, and monitoring. And we've not really appropriately censored the internal network uh, with the false idea or concept that everything's okay inside. This has led us to very easy to hack insides uh, uh, without uh, uh, detection. Um, internal corporate networks you see reflected in the recent attacks in the media all sort of um, bear this out. Verizon in their uh, report reported it is often six or more months before one of these attacks are noticed and then usually only when they send data out. So what needs to change here is CISOs need to treat their internal networks as compromised and censor them appropriately to understand what's happening inside. And, and that's gonna be a mix of both network and host-based censoring. What do you foresee as the evolution of threat intelligence, not only in the federal government, but in industry at large? Yeah, well, the early evolution is it to take its place amongst all the other security detection uh, capabilities. And uh, right now we're seeing it um, uh, not as widely adopted as, as, as I'd like to see. So I think what we're going to see is uh, eventually that this is going to be part of any organization's defense in depth strategy. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. I want to thank our guest today, Gavin Reed. Also want to thank our listeners for joining us today on Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives on FedScoot Radio. This is your host, Kevin Green. Catch you next time. Peace.